Before we dive into the book of Daniel, I want to begin by addressing some generalities aimed at kind of setting the stage for our study and hopefully whetting your appetite. For starters, the prophetic books of the Old Testament are divided into two sections, major and minor prophets. The major prophets, which include the writings of men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, are given this particular designation not only because their books contain more content, but the scope of their subject matter tends to be more expansive than the minor prophets. While the book of Daniel concludes this section of major prophetical manuscripts, you need to know, in many ways, Daniel. Daniel kind of stands on its own as being the crown jewel of all biblical prophecy. Daniel not only establishes the skeleton by which the majority of future biblical prophecy hangs, but without his writings, <laughs> well, it would be virtually impossible to understand or to comprehend any of the future prophecy presented for us in the book of Revelation. Daniel and Revelation are two peas of the same pod. I don't want to make any assumptions. So let me just take a moment and explain what a prophet was. It'll help in your understanding. Within Israel, God established three official offices. These offices were foundational to the overall structure and operations of the nation. There was the role of king. And it was the king who administered God's authority over God's people. Secondly, you had the priests whose job it was to represent the people at the temple before God. Finally, you had the prophet, who spoke on God's behalf. The king administered God's authority. The priest represented man before God. The prophet spoke to man for God. In the end, these three offices were all foreshadowing and fulfilled in the person and ministry of Jesus. Well, yes, we have pastors who shepherd the flock. We only have one authority, don't we? King Jesus. As our high priest. We have no need of any other priest. Why? Because it's Jesus. We have Jesus in heaven mediating on our behalf. Finally, all that God has to say to humanity was eventually summed up in Jesus, nothing else to say. In Jesus, we have the Word that became flesh, as the Gospel of John so boldly declares. In the Old Testament context, it would be helpful if you think of a prophet as being God's human megaphone. These men, and in instances women, were the instruments by which God communicated to man. For this reason, the bulk of the major and minor prophets, you'll find that in their writings, they almost always begin with the phrase, Thus says the Lord. Ultimately, God would use these prophets to call out His people concerning their sin, provide them instruction, warn them of coming judgment if they refuse to repent. And yet, as a prophet, the book of Daniel it reads much differently 
than the others. Instead of this straight, thus says the Lord approach, God speaks to and through Daniel in some really radical ways. In chapters 2 and 4, Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar God's plan for the future, and he does so by deciphering two separate dreams that deeply worried and troubled the king. In chapter 5, Daniel declares God's intention to destroy Babylon, giving them into the hands of the Persians. And how does he do this? He interprets a literal writing on the wall via the finger of God. In chapter 7, God reveals to Daniel the future of successive empires. How does he do this? He gives Daniel his own dream. In chapter 8, Daniel receives a bizarre and confounding vision of a ram and a goat. So confounding, the angel Gabriel is sent, appears, and explains the interpretation to him. In chapter 9, as Daniel is studying God's word on his own and praying to the Lord concerning the fate of Israel, Gabriel again is used by the Lord to help him understand God's ultimate plan and intentions for his people. In chapters 10 through 12, Daniel meets a mysterious man by the banks of the Tigris who peels back the veil of world affairs, unveiling the final resolution of all things. (laughs) Beyond all of that, in chapters 1, 3, and 6, God will manifest himself in the halls of pagan kingdoms and powers through the godly witness of a crew of Hebrew men who refused to compromise, even if it required they be thrown into a fiery furnace or a lion's den. What sets the book of Daniel apart, what makes him so unique, is that he ends up being God's megaphone, God's mouthpiece, not only concerning the future of the Hebrew people, but he speaks more broadly to the rise and fall of world empires. Now, this will be largely lost as we work our way through Daniel, mainly because Daniel has been translated into English. But one of the interesting characteristics of this book is that in his writings, Daniel will switch between languages based upon the intended audience. Let me give you an example of this. Daniel will begin writing in his native Hebrew before switching to the common tongue of the day, Aramaic, starting in chapter 2, verse 4. This will continue all the way through the end of chapter 7, when in chapter 8, verse 1, Daniel then switches back to Hebrew. In fact, a portion of Daniel, chapter 4, is actually written in the ancient Chaldean language because it was penned by Nebuchadnezzar himself. It will become apparent in our study over the coming weeks that Daniel's ministry, (laughs) it transcended Israel. And his message was global in scope. Personally, Daniel will find himself riding on the crest of two different world empires. Initially, he'll become the most trusted advisor of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. But by the end of his life, Daniel will also serve his Persian replacement a king named Cyrus. Daniel. Daniel ends up front and center, a front row seat, 
for two of the biggest geopolitical shifts in human history. As an aside to this, one of the great themes of Daniel will be the absolute sovereignty of God. On ten or so occasions, the God of Israel, Jehovah God, will be referred to as being, quote, the Most High God, or literally, God the Highest. That particular designation will even be affirmed by the pagan players in this book. Understand, as it concerns the affairs of this world, and this is so relevant for today, there is absolutely nothing, this is what Daniel tells us, nothing that happens outside of God's direct intentional involvement. Please know that. As we'll see in Daniel, it is God who raises up kingdoms, and it is God who sees to their downfall. God is in total control of whoever is in control. Aside from Babylon the Great and Medo-Persia, Daniel's prophecies will also address the rise and the fall of the Grecian Empire under Alexander. He'll address the emergence and might of a Roman Empire, along with Rome's inevitable downfall and reordering. With more than half of Daniel's prophecies, they've found a fulfillment already in history. But what's so exciting is that more than half still remains. In fact, Daniel will have tons to say of a still yet future world power and its diabolical leader. Another thing you'll notice as we work our way through the book of Daniel is how exacting and detailed his prophecies truly are. Because of this, it's a fact that no book of the Bible has been attacked more aggressively. Since the prophecies contained in Daniel are so precise, so meticulous, critics of the Bible are forced, they have no other option, but to call into question Daniel's authorship and therefore the dating of the book of Daniel being 530 B.C. Now, I really don't want to spend a ton of time on this. Aside from the fact, well, first, the book of Daniel claims Daniel as its author. In chapter 8, verse 1, 9, verse 2, 9, verse 20, and 10, verse 2, we read literally, I, Daniel. So the book claims Daniel as its author. But you should also note Ezekiel, who was a contemporary Jewish prophet of Daniel, also serving in Babylon at the time. He affirms Daniel as being a historical character, a figure, by mentioning him specifically on at least Four different occasions. Let me give you just one example. In Ezekiel 14, verses 12 through 14, we read, quote, The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut it off from man and beast. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. Ezekiel not only mentions Daniel, but he affirms his righteous character. Furthermore, as a, as a fact of history, we know the book of Daniel predates 
even the most skeptical estimations. Multiple historians, ancient historians, including Josephus, tell us that when Alexander the Great came to destroy Jerusalem in the year 332 B.C., he was met by the high priest, Jaduthan, who proceeded to read to Alexander the section of Daniel predicting his rise and conquests over the mighty Persians. Impressed, Alexander, we're told, decided to spare the city as well as the temple. I could take more time to defend the authorship of Daniel. The evidence is overwhelming. That said, you really don't need anything more than the testimony of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 24, during what is known as his Olivet Discourse, Jesus said the following, He said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the, quote, abomination of desolation, end quote, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. If Jesus believed Daniel the prophet wrote this book, it's good enough for me. Now, with some of the generalities out of the way, hopefully whetting your appetite, let's go ahead and dive into this incredible, incredible book. Daniel chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jeroboam, uh, not Jeroboam, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of the Lord, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed, as Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. These four verses, they're important. And they demand our careful consideration, and here's why. These four verses set up for us the background, as well as establishing the backdrop for the entire book of Daniel. The recorded narrative begins with the establishment of a definite time frame. We're told in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Jehoiakim became king in the year 608 B.C., making it now 605. In order for you to have a complete picture of all these things, a little Jewish history is warranted. While the kings of Judah had been wicked since the reign of the godly king Hezekiah, 57 years following his death, in the year 640 B.C., an eight-year-old boy named Josiah would become the unlikely king over Judah. Though the people had endured a series of just terrible rulers. 2 Kings verses 22 verse 2 says of Josiah that while young, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all ways as his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. During Josiah's 31-year reign, 
not only did this young man represent the Lord well, but he funded, spearheaded the remodeling of the temple that was dilapidated. According to 2 Kings 22, while this important work was happening, a priest ends up discovering a copy of God's law that had long been forgotten. The priest finds the scroll. They rush it to Josiah. He reads God's word. And in response, he establishes, he enacts sweeping reforms, reinstituting the true worship of the living God. 2 Kings chapter 23. Let, let me read you a little bit of this time period. Beginning with verse 21, we're told, Then Josiah commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, and it is written in the book of the covenant. And then we're given a little commentary that such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the king of Israel and the kings of Judah. This was quite a Passover. Moreover, Josiah, within these reforms, he put away those who consulted mediums, fortune tellers. He got rid of the household gods and idols. He got rid of all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Summarizing Josiah and his life, we're told that before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his might according to all of the law of Moses. <laughs> Nor did any arise like him afterwards. Tragically, this revival, spearheaded by Josiah, <clears throat> well, it proved to be too little, too late regarding the ultimate fate of Judah. In the very next verse, after all this great stuff about Josiah, 2 Kings 23, verse 26, this is what we read. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of His great wrath, with which His anger was aroused towards Judah. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel, and will cast off its city Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. In the end, King Josiah would tragically die in battle against the Egyptians. His wicked son, Jehoaz, is crowned king, but almost immediately taken captive. 2 Kings 23, verse 34, we read, Then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. Again, this man Jehoiakim, referenced in Daniel 1 verse 1, comes to the throne in the year 608 B.C. In 620 B.C., a few years before this, at really the height of the Assyrian Empire, an official named Nabopolassar, he rebelled establishing himself the new king of the city of Babylon. By 607, some 13 years later, Assyria, this great empire, had given way to the ferocious Babylonians who were now dominating the world stage. 
at this point, really the only remaining threat to their absolute power were the Egyptians who remained in the south. Since this was the case, in the early part of 605, Nabopolassar's son, Nebuchadnezzar, came down to wage war against Pharaoh. Though Jehoiakim had been set upon the throne to strengthen Judah's alliance with Egypt, he was upon a Pharaoh. In 2 Kings 24, we're actually told Jehoiakim pledges a false loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar as well. (laughs) In a sense, he's trying to play both sides of this big conflict. Well, while Nebuchadnezzar was focused on his his battle with the Egyptians, Jehoiakim does something very sneaky. He leads a rebellion against Babylon. But this proves to be a very terrible miscalculation. You see, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar end up being victorious over the Egyptians. Jehoiakim had had picked the wrong side, and after defeating the Egyptians, Nebuchadnezzar's, well, his focus immediately turned to Judah. You see, when the book of Daniel opens, telling us that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, the year is 605, and this is the specific event in reference. Nebuchadnezzar was not known to be a very gracious man. And because of Jehoiakim's actions, Jerusalem, Judah, they were about to experience a measure of Babylonian vengeance. Now what Nebuchadnezzar's full intentions had been in this first siege, we'll never really know. The reason is that in August of 605, while in Judah, trying to figure out what to do, Nebuchadnezzar receives word that his father has died unexpectedly. As such, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies, they're forced to make an immediate return to Babylon so he could be crowned king and maintain secession. Verses 2-4 through of Daniel 1 records Nebuchadnezzar's ultimate decision, probably made in haste, but how to punish Judah. First, look at it again. We read how he, quote, carried into the land of Shinar, that's Babylon, to the treasure house of his God, some of the articles of the house of God. For a moment, imagine seeing that. Like the very articles, the furniture, the artifacts. God had commissioned Moses and the artisans to create, to be used in his house, the tabernacle and the temple. Articles, artifacts, used to facilitate the true worship of the living God, not only are they now taken away, but they end up being displayed and used 700 or so miles away in the temples of the pagan Babylonian deities. The very vessels created, purified, commissioned for the worship of God are now being completely desecrated. It's blasphemy. Now don't forget, Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was one of the the wonders of the ancient world. And the artifacts contained in Solomon's temple were a, 
a big component of this. In fact, many years earlier, King Hezekiah, who again was a godly king, well, he makes a, a mistake. You see, a delegation came from Babylon with gifts, peace offerings. And not feeling any threat, Hezekiah proceeds to take this delegation of Babylonians and he shows off the temple and all the things within her, the glories. Well, word of this reaches Isaiah the prophet who comes to Hezekiah and he confronts him. Then Isaiah prophesied that one day the Babylonians, again, this is 150 years earlier, Isaiah says those Babylonians, they were going to come back and they would ultimately plunder the temple. It appears Nebuchadnezzar, (laughs) he knew what he was looking for. The second punishment doled out is that we read Nebuchadnezzar instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men, and whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. This is the second consequence of Jehoiakim's poor choices. Now while Nebuchadnezzar historically was a brutal and sadistic man and we'll get into his story a lot more in the weeks to come but you can't argue with the fact the man was a shrewd tactician. Nebuchadnezzar will in the end likely be the most powerful man to have ever lived on planet Earth. I mean, he had absolute power. Which, on a side note, kind of explains why more is written about Nebuchadnezzar in Scripture than any other pagan ruler. It's amazing. Uh, Per his instructions, again, being this shrewd tactician, he tells his most trusted advisor, Ashpenaz, he tells him to select from the people a group of young men that they would bring back to Babylon. In addition to the artifacts from the temple, they're going to bring a group of young men. Now, these men, who likely ranged, and we get this from the Hebrew language, between the ages of 13 to 17. So these are are teenagers, they're adolescents. They were characteristically to have no blemish, meaning they couldn't have a physical uh, deformity of some kind. Additionally, they had to be good-looking, as well as intellectually gifted. The truth is this group of young men would represent the best and the brightest that Judah had to offer. Through the mistakes that Nebuchadnezzar had witnessed of the Assyrian Empire, this man knew that it was not possible to rule the world through military might and intimidation alone. It had been a downfall of Assyria. See, Nebuchadnezzar, he understood that in order to grow and sustain a global empire, he would need to surround himself with the best advisors the world had to offer, not just Babylon. Wisely, Nebuchadnezzar would fill his courts with representatives from every nation he conquered. That said, 
for anyone to serve in the palace. It was simply a prerequisite that they had to have the ability, the acumen, to learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. The other reason for this decision centers on which social and economic classes they, they ended up choosing these young men for. When, when trying to understand Nebuchadnezzar's mindset, keep this in mind. They took specifically from, quote, some of the children of Israel, some of the king's descendants or the royal family, as well as some of the nobles or the ruling class of elites. <laughs> Again, shrewd. Can you think of a more effective way in keeping the leading families of a nation under your thumb and line than to take their kids away as hostages. Smart. Jehoiakim. Interestingly, Jehoiakim is allowed to remain on the throne. The artifacts, these young men, they're taken to Babylon. Jehoiakim remains. But you need to know, he was a wicked, evil man. As one of many examples the Bible presents, one year after these things happened, the prophet Jeremiah, he comes to Jehoiakim with a word from the Lord he had written out on a scroll. It's presented to Jehoiakim. He opens it and he only reads the first few paragraphs. And then he does this. He takes a knife and he chops up the scroll and he throws the word of God into the fire. It's at this point, Jeremiah. He tells him that the Babylonians were going to destroy Judah. Jehoiakim, he'll die. And he'll leave the throne to his son in the year 597. This boy's reign, it's short-lived. With his patience growing thin with the Jewish people, Nebuchadnezzar will return a second time. This is not recorded in the book of Daniel, but we know this historically. Other places in Scripture reference this. In fact, 2 Kings chapter 24 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar comes and he takes Jehoiakim's son, the royal family, along with another 10,000 captives back to Babylon, while also procuring the rest of the temple artifacts. He guts the place. Now, if you're wanting to kind of connect the dots, it's at this point, in this second exile, second deportation, that the prophet Ezekiel is taken to Babylon, eight years or so after Daniel. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar, he places Jehoiakim's brother, Zedekiah, onto the throne. He'll proxy, he'll obey me. Sadly, though, 2 Kings 24 also indicates that after just a little while, even Zedekiah rebels against Babylon. That takes about a decade. But in 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar is forced to return for a third time. He's done with this. He's over it. As such, he crushes the uprising. He destroys Jerusalem along with the temple. Not only do they burn everything to the ground. But in 2 Kings 25, we read that Nebuchadnezzar has Zedekiah brought before him, along with Zedekiah's sons. And Nebuchadnezzar proceeds to have Zedekiah's sons slaughtered in front of the man. 
once the boys were dead, the horror in the man's face. Then Nebuchadnezzar commands that Zedekiah's eyes be plucked from his face so that the last images the man would ever have were of his son's dying. Illustrates the ruthlessness of Nebuchadnezzar. Now to aid your big picture understanding of Scripture, when this final siege of Judah and Jerusalem occurs, uh, ending in their destruction, the year 587, keep in mind, that Daniel has already been in Babylon for 18 years. Ezekiel's been there for 10 years. Jeremiah, who began his ministry in the 18th year of King Josiah and had been predicting these things would happen, no one listened. Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem, witnessing all of these things take place, this final destruction. And as it's all happening, he pulls out pen and parchment And he writes the book of Lamentations. I think it's important you realize how deeply unsettling these events truly are. Especially when you place them into the larger narrative of the Bible. Like so many years before this, God had promised to grow the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob into a mighty nation, promising that it would be through their descendants God would send a Savior. Like God's plan to save the world from sin was specifically tied, it was tethered to the Jewish people. Following their time in Egypt, in deliverance, God, He deals with them with such kindness He gives them the law to obey and a land to enjoy. They were his people and he dwelt in their midst. And yet, right from the beginning of their relationship, God had been clear as to the terms. As his people living in a covenant relationship with him, their obedience would bring about his blessing, but their rebellion would necessitate his correction. And if continued, judgment. In Leviticus 26, God is about as forward and as honest as you could possibly be. I mean, we're talking about full disclosures. After explaining the blessings they could enjoy if they obeyed His commands, God says that if they they follow after idols, cheating on Him, and refuse to obey His commandments, Well, this is what God says in Leviticus 26, verses 27 through 33. He says, I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. I will destroy your high places. Cut down your incense altars. Cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. My soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. And I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will bring the land to desolation. And your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished by this. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. (laughs) When you read the story of the Bible and you realize that God's plan to save all of us from sin 
was specifically tied to the Jewish people. When you turn to Daniel chapter 1 and you read the first four verses, I mean, it's a punch and the gut. I mean, the stakes ride. Lots were riding on this. Like, how could this be? God's people, critical to his plan for our redemption. They've now been ripped from the very land God had given them. The very people God had freed from bondage in Egypt are now being taken away captive to Babylon. The tragedy. How could God allow this to happen? (laughs) To compound the situation, don't overlook a detail provided in verse 2. I don't know if you saw it. Let me read it again. We're told, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the articles of the house of God. <laughs> Wait, what? Like what? Like what happened to Judah? What, what happened to the people of God? The ultimate destruction of the temple? Are you saying this was the Lord's doing? That's exactly what the text is saying. The truth is Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire were nothing more than God's instrument to judge His people. In fairness to God, it should be reiterated that this wasn't exactly a snap decision. Like in spite of their continued idolatry, their continued wickedness, their continued sin, their persistent failure to obey God and His commands, for 490 years, God had patiently warned them what was coming if they refused to reverse course. 490 years, that's a long, long time. Like how many times does it take you to tell your kids, don't do that, and they do it anyway. Don't do that, they do it anyway. Don't do that, they do it anyway. Don't do that, they do it. Like how, 490 years are you doing that? I think not. About 15 seconds is about all you have and I have. God had told them. He had warned them. He was patient with them. Again, 150 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had had prophesied that God was going to use the Babylonians to judge them. When the Babylonians rose to power, this should have been like alarm bells going off. Additionally, the prophet Habakkuk, he reiterates this same idea that, that it would be the Babylonians In the year 612, he he says, Habakkuk 1, verses 5 through 7, Look among the nations and watch, says the Lord. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs, They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. While the development presented in the first few verses of Daniel is alarming, again, 
the people of God, they've been given ample warning as well as every single opportunity to repent of their sin. And yet, they remain stubborn in their rebellion. Leaving God zero choice but to act. You see, their destruction and exile in Babylon was nothing more than the consequences of their own decisions. When we get to Daniel 9, like this great and logical question as to whether or not God had given up on Israel as well as His plan to provide a Savior through her, well, that will be answered in great detail. Spoiler alert, God had not given up on His people and His plan to save hadn't been deterred. And yet, there is an important, vital lesson that we shouldn't avoid in the grand context of this, of this story arc. There is no doubt the Hebrew people have been chosen by God as a manifestation of God's grace. While the pagan living in Ur of the Chaldeans, Babylon, God had, he had come and he had called out Abraham. God made him all kinds of incredible promises. Promises, you should note, that didn't exactly necessitate Abraham's involvement. Just his faith. While in bondage in Egypt, it was an act of God's unmerited favor that He raised up Moses and He delivered them. God chose the Jewish people. He made them His own. He gave them an inheritance. When a simple examination of their history reveals how little they deserved any of this. And yet, while for 490 years God's grace manifested in a supernatural patience concerning their rebellion and wickedness, a new approach was now warranted. You see, the overarching lesson presented in the first four verses of Daniel 1 is that God's grace never negates the necessity of His judgment when His people are walking in rebellion. I'll repeat that. God's grace never negates the necessity of His judgment when His people are walking in rebellion. Make no mistake about it. What happened to Judah, and by inclusion Daniel, and these men that were carried away to Babylon, had been completely just and unavoidable. The Lord gave them into the hands of the Babylonians because of their persistent sin. Warning after warning had been refused and ignored. Ultimately, God's hand was forced in the matter. God loved His people enough that He could no longer allow the status quo to continue. This is as good a point as any to apply these things to you and I. While the Hebrew people remained God's chosen people, even in spite of their awful choice, choices, like their standing didn't change even though they were in Babylon. They were still the people of God. But it's simply a fact that their sinful choices still yielded terrible consequences. They were still the people of God, but they were being punished as the people of God. 
The temple of God was defiled. Their bondage resulted. Christian, please know that while Jesus has given you a right standing in heaven as a child of God, it doesn't change the fact deliberate sin and rebellion will manifest the same type of real, tangible consequences in your life. As the temple of God, that's what you are. You're the temple of the living God. Friend, there is no greater defilement, blasphemy, perversion, than a person who's been set free from sin, finding themselves living in the bondage of sin. That's in these situations when we've engaged in disobedience, ignored God's warnings, hardened in our resolve to continue the rebellious path that we've set for ourselves, that God, in His grace, refuses to stand idly by. As with Judah, the Lord, it is the Lord who enacts judgment in our lives. Let me, let me ask, have you ever found yourself in such a situation? You're a Christian, saved by grace, liberated from sin, set free from bondage. God's done an amazing work in your life and in your heart, making you into a new creation. And yet over time, it starts small, but it grows larger. You make a series of tragic decisions. Like if we're being honest, you knew from the beginning that what you were doing was wrong. You ignored in the process the warning of friends. The warnings of God's Word. God was patient. But then His patience expired. And it happened. In a moment, your house of cards came tumbling down. Your choices caught up with you. The ruse was up. God intervenes. In an instant, your life completely changes, doesn't it? You experience what you know to be the judgment of God. Your wife files for divorce, taking your kids from you, citing your affair. Your employer is forced to fire you for cause. A creditor takes away your home for unethical uh, practices that caught up to you, or worse still, the IRS comes knocking. Like in a moment, you are ripped by God from the land of promise and forced to live in Babylon in exile. Again, speaking honestly, in these moments, it's only natural that you begin to question certain things. You're standing before God. Your future. In this place of failure and judgment, you can't help but think, is God done with me? You blew it. You deserve it. God's justice demanded the consequences you're experiencing. You imagine 
that you've so irreparably ruined things that there's no way God, no way the Lord could have any future use for your life. It's over. What's next? Friend, this is what makes this book so amazing. And and yes, our approach will be different than, than all the other commentaries you read. But I believe and I see the story of Daniel illustrating something awesome. You see, while God's grace doesn't negate his judgment, and in some instances, it demands it. I mean, there are consequences for rebellion, even as a child of God. But what this book also reaffirms through the story of Daniel is this. You're still a child of God. He can still use your life. And His grace remains accessible even for those being judged. As we'll begin to see in the verses that follow, like Daniel and a group of his friends, If, in the midst of your judgment and the hardship that naturally results, if you accept the fact that your plight is of your own making, and if you humble yourself and choose to repent and confess and accept responsibility, as Daniel and his friends will learn, you will discover a most astonishing and unbelievable reality. There is still grace in exile. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.